As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. We've been studying our way through, and we come first to a section of Scripture where Peter is explaining who Jesus is to people who desperately need to hear it. People who should have known, people who should have seen, but people who had missed the relevance, the significance, the earth-shattering, the history-making impact of this person, Jesus Christ. But now, Peter is explaining to them for the very first time this great significance, this magnificent person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to just simply look at two verses this morning that I think are critical for us as it was for them 2,000 years ago. And I'm praying already, I have been praying that this really helps us even this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table to do so in a way that would be fitting, honoring, reflective, celebrating, meaningful, and honoring to Jesus Christ. So look at the Word of God with me, Acts chapter 2. Let me just read the verses, verses 22 and 23. This is Peter preaching on Pentecost. He says this, "'Men of Israel, hear these words.'" Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." If you were to walk out onto the street and randomly walk up to people and ask them this simple question, who is Jesus Christ, you would get a variety of different answers. You would get some people saying that they think Jesus is a historical figure. He was somebody who existed a long time ago. He had significance back then and maybe perhaps some significance now. You'd hear people say that he was a moral man. He was a man who held a a high standard of ethics and morality in front of the people he taught to. You would hear people say he was a good teacher. You know, he, he, he rallied crowds of people and he communicated with effectiveness and winsomeness and great wisdom. You would hear some people say, that he was a mighty prophet who spoke on behalf of God, communicated the very heart and mind of God to the people of God. You would even hear some tell you that he is a God. Maybe, maybe today you'd probably run into more and more people who would say simply, I don't know, and I don't really care. But I wonder if you were to ask the people who were surrounding Jesus in his life and ministry, if you were to ask the people who knew Jesus, who had spent time with Jesus, what they thought of him, what would they say? Well, interestingly, in the Word of God, there were crowds of people in Matthew chapter 16 who were asking this question, who is this man? And the disciples, they came to Jesus, and and they're telling Jesus that this is what people are are inquiring about. They're wondering, Jesus, who are you? I mean, what's the significance of, of what you're doing and what you're saying and who you are? And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says to them, who do you say that I am? He looks at those who had spent almost three years with him, and he puts them into a corner, and he says, I want to hear from you. Who do you say that I am? Peter 
The man who is preaching the very words we're looking at, the man who always stepped forward to give his opinion and sometimes even communicated great, profound truth, steps forward in the face of Jesus Christ and he replies with these life-changing words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus looked at this boisterous leader, Peter, and he says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This very same Peter now stands on Pentecost People from all over the ancient world had rallied. All the Jews from every nation under heaven had gathered, and they're celebrating this feast. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God is unleashed upon this small group of believers, the very first church, and Peter stands up to explain with boldness, with courage, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the significance of the events that they are witnessing in this moment And by the power of the Holy Spirit, what he does is he begins to teach about Jesus Christ. He begins to fulfill the very words that Jesus said to him, that upon this rock, this confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, that he would build his church. And so Peter begins in our text today by laying the cornerstone, the very foundation of all things that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes on to unfold to his hearers the significance of these events. Now, Peter has just made a very powerful statement in verse 21. He's quoted Joel chapter 2. And in doing so, he's told the people that there is a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy taking place, that this is the time that they had been anticipating. This is the time that history would change. And he ends this section of Joel by stating this in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every person who is there surrounding Peter as he preached this sermon would have instantly thought that the word Lord was Yahweh God. That would have been what would have been circulating in their mind. They would have been thinking that Peter was talking about none other than God himself. They only believed in one God, God the Father, as a monotheistic religion. They never saw the Trinity unfolded as they were about to. So, they hear Peter's words, and they're thinking about God himself. They're not thinking about a man, and yet Peter is about to revolutionize their theology. He's about to teach them about the Trinity that was present in the Old Testament, but not clearly unfolded. He's about to add information previously under or unknown or more likely misunderstood. And what he says is about to change everything. He tells them, in essence, that to call upon the name of the Lord is now to call upon this name, it is to call upon this Jesus. He was a man from Nazareth, as Peter makes abundantly clear in verse 22. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, by the way, was not a kind term. It was a derogatory term. It was a condescending term. They never believed that anything good could come from Nazareth. And so, Peter is 
pointing out this man from Nazareth, this particular Jesus. Instantly, everybody knew exactly who he was talking about. This was the man who was put on a cross, treated as a common criminal only 50 days earlier. Peter proclaims that God has made the identity of this Jesus clear in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And this passage neatly breaks down into two of those sections that we're going to look at this morning, his life and his death. And through his life and his death, Jesus is being held up, he's being propped up, he's being exalted as none other than the Messiah, he's being exalted as God in human flesh. Let's look first at his life, and notice this first, that this life, this Jesus, excuse me, had a life of unprecedented power. He begins by talking about this Jesus of Nazareth who was a man, notice these words, attested to you by God. That's a significant word that Peter uses, uses there. Some translations say that he was accredited to you. By the way, the grammar tells us this, that Peter is looking at this as an event that occurred in the past that has continuing results. It has already taken place, and it has significant results for what they are to know, understand, and to believe about now. The idea of being accredited by God is something we shouldn't kind of gloss over too lightly. It means simply this, to show forth for public recognition or to demonstrate or prove that something is true. And you can think of it like this in our terms of understanding. When someone or something is accredited in their profession, they're simply being recognized by an authority to have met the proper qualifications. And so what Peter is saying is this, that God is the authority And he has accredited Jesus, he has established Jesus as meeting the right criteria and authority for being the Messiah, for being the Savior of the world. I want you to see this too. Peter is just intent on making this abundantly clear. Who is the one responsible for this? Who has made this abundantly clear? Who is the authority that they are to be listening to? It is God. God is the one who put forth Jesus. God is the one who accredited or established Jesus. God did all of these things, these mighty works, wonders and signs through Jesus. And so you see what Peter is doing. He's laying down an argument that will have radical impact on his hearers. These Jews all believed in God. They believed that God was the supreme authority of the universe, that God was to be heard and obeyed that they ought to respond to the very words of God. And so what Peter is doing is saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you, what I am showing you is the very hand of God at work through Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, when Peter stands up to proclaim and to preach his sermon, he's saying is, you don't have to worry about listening to me. This isn't my opinion. You need to consider listening to God because this is God's word. Now, I love that because that gives us great courage, doesn't it? What a model for us in terms of how we carry forth this message to the world. Remember, our entire sermon series, the entire book of Acts, is intent on making sure the church understands the purpose and the mission of God. We are being sent out into the world. We are bearing witness to the truth of who he is and what he has done. And I love that Peter, listen, Peter can stand in the face of the enemies of God, as we've seen already, as we've read this passage, the very people who are responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ. Peter now stands in boldness before them and says, look, do with me what you want. Think of me what you want. Respond to me how you want. But what you need to understand is this. What I say, I say on behalf of God himself. This is 
This is God's word, not my word. What courage this ought to give us as we walk out into the face of a world that, as Jesus said, hates us because they hate him. How we ought to have boldness and courage. How we ought to stand with great conviction before the world and confront the world, listen, with love and compassion and grace. But we ought to do it as we've just sung about. I love that new song. With boldness we will go, amen? And we go with boldness because we carry forth the very word of God for salvation to all those who believe. Now, how did God do this? How did God accredit Jesus? How did God attest to Jesus? Well, he did so in three significant ways, the first of which is this, with mighty works. Did you notice that in the text? Jesus moved forward with unprecedented power in his life and ministry. The word here in the Greek is the word uh, dunamai, and I, I tell you that simply to give you some context. It's that where we get our English word, a dynamite. Now, now don't, don't think of explosive power when you think of Jesus, okay? Remember, we can't import kind of words that have meaning back into when things didn't exist. There was no dynamite then. But the word simply means this. It means power. It means effective ability. It means strength. You see, Jesus' whole life and ministry, all of the works that he did were characterized by this incredible strength, this unbelievable and unprecedented power. The word specifically speaks of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Through the ages, God's prophets, God's messengers, some of them were validated by their ability to perform miracles. This is the way that God kind of put his stamp of approval upon his messengers and his stamp of approval upon the very message that they carried. Think of Moses, who when he's sent to Pharaoh, was given the ability to perform these 10 incredible signs. Signs that were intended to tell Pharaoh what? That, that God is real, that God is concerned about his people, that you need to hear that God is speaking to you right now. I don't come on my own authority, Pharaoh. I come with the authority of God Almighty. Think of Elijah and Elisha, prophets of God who raised people from the dead. They filled widows' jugs with new oil, called down fire from heaven to put pagan priests and pagan gods to utter shame and humiliation. But here's the point. When we look at Jesus, listen, there is no one else in all of human history who did the things that Jesus did. No one who ever came close. They were mighty works because of what they accomplished. Think of the life of Jesus. Now, I know we spent a couple weeks last year and the year before looking at Jesus, right? Come on, everybody. Like, that was our ministry theme for two years. Jesus, right? The gospel of John, we just, we soaked in it. We lived in it. We ate it. We drank it. We breathed it. And the intent was this, listen, to have our, our eyes, our minds just shaped by the picture of Jesus Christ, that we might see him, that we might believe him, and we might live, find life in him. And throughout the Gospel of John, as, as we read through all the Gospels, one of the things we see is this. The unprecedented power of Jesus Christ is put on display for all people to see. It is undeniable. He begins his ministry by turning water into wine. And he steps it up just drastically by healing a lame person. Pick up your bed, you know, roll it up, and walk. 
He begins to heal the blind. He begins to give hearing to the deaf. He begins to allow people who didn't have limbs to sprout limbs. He begins to cast out demons. He feeds thousands of people on a hillside with two fish and five loaves of bread. He calls a dead man who had been dead for three days to step out of the grave. I love what John says at the end of the Gospel of John. John's like, look, I could have written a lot of stuff. And if, and if I wrote all the things that Jesus said and did, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain the volumes that could be written. We have, this is amazing to think about, we have a glimpse in the Gospels of the life of Jesus. We have a small, listen, piece of the pie of the mighty works that he performed. Listen, here's, what we, we see, here's the picture in the Gospels is this. Day and night, every place he went for three years, people are flocking to Jesus. They're coming, they're rushing. They just want to get near him. They want to see his power. They want to be healed. They want to have demons cast out. They want to be new people with new life, with new hope. I love the story of Jesus in the boat in the midst of the raging sea. In John chapter 6, all the disciples are freaking out for their life, thinking that it's over, and Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. The power of Jesus Christ was unlike anything they had ever seen or heard before. None of the prophets before who had miraculous abilities ever could do what Jesus did, especially not with the consistency and the volume of what he did repeatedly over and over again, pouring out his power, doing incredible things. There was nothing he couldn't do. In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, listen to what it says. It says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Again, I want you just to, let me just highlight this. None of this was done in secret. All of this was done in public. It wasn't hidden from the religious elite or for any, from anyone for that matter. The word of Jesus spread rapidly. The things that he could do were known far and wide. People flocked to him. People cut holes in the tops of houses to drop their quadriplegic friends just to get near to Jesus. And what was God attesting to? What did these mighty works really say to the people who experienced them? Here it is, one word, authority. Authority over what? Over absolutely everything. There is nothing. There is no realm of nature. There is no realm, no spiritual realm. There is nothing in all creation that Jesus Christ does not have complete and total authority over. Sickness, check. Demons, check. Check. Wind and waves, all of nature, check. Forgiveness of sins, check. Do you get the point? Right, and they marveled. In, in Mark chapter 2, it's amazing. As Jesus, he's going to heal this, this quadriplegic, and, and he says to them, so he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody is kind of mumbling to themselves, thinking, who does this guy think he is? Only God has authority to forgive sins. Yes. 
And so Jesus says, well, just so you know that I have authority to forgive sins, I'll do something that I know that will impress you too. Um, pick up your bed and walk. You see, the mighty works of God declare, they declare that authority belongs, the authority of God belongs to Jesus Christ because he is God. This Jesus, listen, this Jesus is amazing. This Jesus, I love, I love what he goes on to say here. Not only was he attested to you by God with mighty works, notice this, he uses three, three separate words because he wants to nuance just how awesome this God is, just how awesome this Jesus is. He says this, not only by mighty works, he says, and wonders. Now, you, you could look at wonders and you could say, well, that's just another word for mighty works. And the answer is yes and no. It nuances our understanding of what Peter is wanting to communicate and what God wants us to understand. And just notice this, secondly, not only do we see that this Jesus had a life of unprecedented power, we see that he had unbelievable presence. I mean, to be in the presence of Jesus was something just so outside of the norm. It was so unusual. It was so utterly inconceivable and incredible. I think that just people who must have been in the presence of Jesus must have had to pinch themselves regularly to make sure they weren't dreaming. Is this really happening? Am I really seeing these things? Can you just put yourself in their shoes just for a minute? Can you imagine you saw us? I'm not talking about like some crazy magician doing illusions. I'm talking about somebody, you know, under the command and word of Jesus, sprouting a limb that they didn't have. Could you imagine that? He, he uses this word wonders. You just think about that word for a minute. Again, you can argue that this is the same thing, that it's synonymous with mighty works, but it's, it's different in a sense. This term points to what the miracles produced or ought to have produced. Just, just think about what I'm saying. Wonders make you what? Yeah, thank you. Wonder. You're like, that, that's the point. They make you kind of step back and go, what in the world is happening here? This isn't normal. They produce the, the sense that you're in the presence of something that is transcendent, something that is so much greater, so much bigger, so much further beyond you, something that your mind can't fully comprehend. Isn't that true? Just think about going to the Grand Canyon. Anybody been there? Show of hands. You stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and, and just for the first time, you stand there, and you, all you can say, uh, just, if you're like me, you just say, Wow. Like, that is awesome. That's a big hole. Right? Or you stand, listen, you stand and you look at Niagara Falls and you just see just the, 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 the millions of gallons of water rushing over th this edge and the sound, the volume that it makes and just the incredible beauty that you see. And there's something, isn't there something inside you? As you see that, you kind of, you just kind of, you're, you're, you gasp and you say, wow. And yet, just think, those, those things are nothing, nothing compared to the wonder of what people must have experienced when they saw Jesus perform his mighty works. You think what you're seeing is pretty awesome? <laughs> this Jesus was so remarkable that there is a common refrain throughout the Gospels that we hear repeated by those who found themselves in the presence of Jesus. 
And let me just give you a few examples, and we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study here, so get ready, get your hands ready, start doing some stretches, okay? Just listen, Matthew 8, 27, and the men marveled, listen, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Matthew 9, 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything seen like this in all of Israel. Matthew 13, 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Flip backwards in your Bible to the book of Mark. I just, I I can't help but show you just how much this is repeated in the scriptures. Go to Mark chapter 1 and get your fingers ready. We're going to be leafing through some pages here. Mark, Mark is an awesome little gospel, okay? It's the shortest gospel account. And Mark kind of, he moves through the like, life of Christ with a sense of urgency, a sense of immediacy. But, but he doesn't stop. You know, he, he kind of has these brief pauses where he wants to highlight a response to Jesus Christ. And so you see this throughout the entire gospel. As he's moving quickly, there's these pauses that ought to make you kind of just go, okay, hold on, there's a, three, there's a theme here I need to pay attention to. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 22 says this, just as this at the beginning of his ministry, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one, notice this word again, who had authority, not as the scribes. Drop down to verse 27. This is after he cast a demon out of a man, it says this, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Chapter 2, verse 12. This is after he'd healed the paralytic. It says this, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Chapter 5, verse 20. Again, Jesus heals a man with a demon in him, and it says this, and he went away, this is the man, and began to proclaim in the, in the, the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Chapter 6, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus has just healed a deaf man. And here's what they say. And they were astonished beyond measure. I love that. Just mark that. Saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Chapter 9, verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Just one more. Flip all the way to Mark chapter 16. Where most scholars believe 
the Gospel of Mark actually ends, the very last verse, if that's true, in the book of Mark, listen to what it says in verse 8. And this is the response, by the way, to the empty tomb, the greatest wonder of all. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Something awesome has occurred. You can flip back to Acts. You know, as, as I was thinking through this, I just think we need, to, we need to allow the themes of Scripture sometimes to hit us with a bit of a punch. And, and I think the reason this is so significant because, you know, the authors of the Gospels tell us this, that we ought to be astonished, amazed, we ought to marvel at Jesus Christ, and yet I believe that our problem is that we so quickly move on past that. Somewhere down the line in the Christian life, we just cease to be amazed with Jesus Christ, don't we? It just becomes normal. It's like, you know, oh, there's the Grand Canyon again. Now that's a nice hole, all right. I don't think I need to see that again. Been to Niagara Falls once. That's quite enough for me. Thank you very much. And that's fine if we're talking about, you know, the seven wonders of the world. But that's not okay when we talk about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus so far surpasses the wonders of this world. And I really believe that this is one of the keys to living an effective Christian life. It is to be standing constantly in amazement, in wonder, in awe, and understanding that the the Savior that we look at, that we have the privilege of gazing upon, is absolutely astonishing. He is utterly awesome. He is unprecedented in power and majesty and glory, and there should be nothing that we believe is even close to as amazing and awesome as Jesus Christ. We need to recover in the church of Jesus Christ greater wonder and awe of our Savior. So how do we do that? Well, I think we have to be intentional, to be quite honest with you. I think if we get sidetracked by focusing on a lot of things that don't necessarily matter, maybe they're not wrong or bad or sinful, they just don't matter, that, you know, you know we, can, we can miss the best thing for uh, good things. We can miss what, is, ought, what ought to be our focus when we're looking at the things in our peripheral vision. And so I just think that we need to be continually pressing one another to keep focused, to, be, to allow Jesus Christ to be our aim and pursuit in this life. And that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, right? We pursue him. He is the prize we pursue. We run this race with great endurance, with great discipline, and we run after our Savior. We do that by digging deeper into Him. We do that by gathering and rallying together. You know, it's no mistake. You know, God knows that we get sidetracked easily. I believe that's one of the main reasons that the church was called and began early on to meet very consistently. Uh, you know, they're meeting, not only are they meeting every Lord's Day, they're gathering constantly in each other's homes. Why? Why? Because they don't want to forget who it is that they ought to be focused on. They, they know that in their sinfulness, they're so easily sidetracked and distracted, and so the call of the church is to constantly be with each other so that we press one another on, we stir one another up to love and good needs. We encourage one another all the more until the day draws near. You see, we help each other stay focused on Jesus Christ. That's why God gave us communions, you know that? 
There's a reason why we celebrate communion as consistently as we do, and maybe we need to celebrate it some more. It's because this, we are so easily distracted by the things of the world, and so when we gather together, we're reminded that even while, listen, there's great fellowship, there's great relationships, and we celebrate that, the reason we are here is all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? We ought to never, ever lose sight of that. It is the grace of God, it is the love of God that is culminated and manifested most greatly in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the center of everything we do. He is the center of our Sunday worship. He is the center of our small group meetings. He is the center of our Christian friendships. Listen, he is the center of our personal devotions. He's the center of everything. I pray, I pray that he continues to grow in our hearts and minds and he continues to take more and more space in our hearts so that our affection is undiluted and is wholly given over for him. Lastly, we notice this, that this Jesus had a life of undeniable proof. See the word that he uses next? It says, not just was he attested by God to you with mighty works and wonders, but also with signs. And again, just notice this, that God did through him in your midst as you, listen, as you yourselves know. You know what he's saying? You know what he's emphasizing there? Guys, I'm not telling you anything about this Jesus that you don't already know. You all heard of him. In fact, most of you all saw him. You experienced the mighty works and the signs. You know it's undeniable what he did. We know this, that even secular literature, secular historians, Josephus is a Jewish historian, he documents the the common word about Jesus in the ancient world of the time of Jesus. he He was a man known for performing mighty, miraculous, supernatural works. It's undeniable, and that's, it's, it's amazing. When you look through the Gospels, nobody ever denied the work that Jesus were doing. Did you ever notice that? They couldn't. It was so painfully obvious. And so Peter here says that these were signs. Now, just think about that for a second. What is a sign? A sign points to something, right? It points to a deeper meaning. It conveys information or instruction. I'll just illustrate that maybe by a, a stop sign. You, you all know what to do at a stop sign. At least most of you do right? It's not optional. It's actually stop, right? But stop sign, it's, we, we know the shape. You can picture it in your mind. It's red. You can see the font in your mind, you know, the shape of the stop sign. And so you see that sign, and you know instantly that you're supposed to stop. Where? At that line, another sign, right? Not over the line, not on people's toes. You see, Jesus wasn't just doing these things to impress people. So I'm like, let me just show you some good tricks, everybody, so that you can just really appreciate all that I can do. There was so much more than that. They had deep meaning embedded into them. They pointed primarily to two things. They pointed to, someone, to, to something, to, excuse me, to who he was. They pointed to the fact that he was God. Right? No one could do these things unless he be from God. Nicodemus, our buddy Nick, was so close to the truth. No one could do these things unless he was God. But it pointed also to what's to come. There were signs that he was the long-anticipated Messiah. That's who these Jews had been waiting for. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the one who's going to come and liberate Israel, restore us to prominence in the world. We're waiting for the one, the king, who's going to come and rule and reign in righteousness. He's going to overthrow our enemies. He's going to be awesome. 
Peter stressed that these Jews should have read the meaning of these signs. That's what he's saying here. You should have seen the meaning of these signs. You should have recognized that this was the appointed Messiah. The color, the shape, the font, it was all there. But like a driver distracted by a cell phone, they just blew right through the signs. Matthew 12, 23 says, and that all the people were amazed, listen to this, they're so close, and they said, can this be the son of David? They even hailed him as Messiah on Palm Sunday, right? They all gathered and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here he is. He's the king, he's, he's going to come and establish Israel to prominence again. But he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were hoping for. They had distorted the Word of God. They had missed the entirety of what the Word of God communicated about the Messiah and His work. Jesus' miracles were signs not simply of His Messiahship, of His kingship. That's what Messiah is pointing at. He's the anointed king, the king of kings. They pointed to the coming kingdom that He would bring. Wherever the king is, His kingdom is there. And that's what we saw, we see throughout the life of Jesus. And so what Jesus does, even in his, his life, is where he is, he's giving them glimpses of what his future earthly reign will make up, will be made up of. Just think about that for a minute. So the signs that he performs, like when he, when he turns water into wine, he's not just putting on a good party. Wine was symbolic in the Jewish culture of God's blessings. They knew this. It was linked to kingdom passages when the Messiah reigns, that the hills will flow with wine. God's provision will be bountiful. His blessing will be showered upon them. You see, he was pointing them towards that coming kingdom. When Jesus healed the lame, do you want to know what he's saying? He wasn't just saying, like, I hope you just live happy, healthy, and wealthy now. He was telling them that there is a kingdom coming where sin will be utterly eradicated. There will be no more sickness. There will be more, no more disease. There will be no more maladies. Nobody will be crippled in heaven. Praise God. Amen? My knees are killing me. My back is destroyed. I'm looking forward to that day. And that day's coming but that comes when the king returns and everybody is given a new body to live in this new coming kingdom, the culmination of the kingdom that has begun with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the kingdom of God, nobody will be hungry, everybody will be well fed. In the kingdom of God, justice will rule and righteousness will reign. In the kingdom of God, there will be no cataclysmic earthquakes or volcanoes or tornadoes or hurricanes. You see, everything will be made back to what it was intended to be. They missed the signs. They missed the signs of hope. They missed the signs of promises being fulfilled. They missed the signs of a new day and a new age that was breaking in now. They missed the signs, and instead of repenting and embracing Him, they nailed Him to a piece of wood. They took this Jesus, who was God in flesh, and instead of acknowledging that He was God, they said, this is done by the power of Satan. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus says this to the unbelieving, hard-hearted people who witnessed his power. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. See, that's what God wanted. His signs were pointing them to his salvation. His signs were pointing them, by the way, to their own sinfulness, that they were in need of a Savior. He was showing them that he could overcome. Not only did he have authority, listen, over all the realms of nature, both supernatural and natural, he had authority over sins to forgive it and to deal sin its final death blow. And that's what Peter moves on to talk about in the next verse. You see, this Jesus died because of the unstoppable plan. Verse 22 says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. While Peter is about to tell them that Christ's death was caused by them, he begins by telling them that it's also a part of God's plan and purposes. Now, these these twin truths present great confusion and great tension in our minds, don't they? In fact, uh, over the millennia, they've caused great division and been the source of much debate even within the church of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because it presents in our minds a seeming paradox, not an actual paradox. A, A true paradox is when two things, they contradict each other. They don't actually fit together. These fit together. We just struggle to understand how, right? Somehow, in God's plan, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together perfectly. They don't contradict. They don't even collide. They work in sync. They work in perfect harmony with one another. Now, this is not unusual in dealing with spiritual truth. Many doctrines involve seeming paradoxes. For example, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Not 50-50. He's 100-100. Figure that one out, right? Scripture is writing by human authors, but God wrote every word, right? The gospel is offered to the whole world, yet applied only to the elect. God eternally secures the salvation of believers, yet they are commanded to persevere. Now, listen, there are good answers to these seeming paradoxes. And yet, I would argue that many of these leave us in a place where we simply have to learn to embrace and live in the tension that they produce. If you think you can figure out all of the mind of God, then you would be on par with God, right? Let's just let God have some stuff, okay? He, he knows a lot more than we do. He can figure out a lot more than we can. He's planned it all, but we need to understand that there is tension here. The problem is this, Christians who try to reconcile every doctrine in a humanly rational way are inevitably drawn to extremes. If you try to remove all of the mystery in these seeming paradoxes, you'll either emphasize one truth or aspect of God's word at the expense of another, which seems to contradict it. So you'll say, well, God is completely sovereign and man has basically no responsibility. Or you say, well, man is totally responsible and God's, you know, as I've heard people say before, well, God's in charge, but he's not really in control. That's dangerous. Our goal is to understand both and embrace the tension that they produce. So notice what Peter says first. He says that Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan of God, right? That's the point there. 
And you have to catch this. God is the one who delivered him up. This is amazing to think about. God gave his one and only son. He gave him over to suffer and die. He gave him into the hands of his enemies. He gave him into the hand of his betrayer. He literally handed him over willingly. It was all according to the definite plan. The word definite in some translations is rightly also translated as predetermined. It means to set limits, to determine boundaries. It comes from the Greek word horizo, which we get our English word horizon. You know what the horizon is? Where when you look down as far as your eye can see, it's that kind of artificial line that separates, that delineates the sky from the earth. It tells us that there is a demarcation. And here we understand this to mean that God has set limits, he has determined determined boundaries, he has defined boundaries, he has appointed, he has fixed his plans. You combine that with the word plan that's used here, which means this, it has to do with intention, resolution, design, and what you come up with is this, that all that has happened in the life of Jesus was according to the plan that God himself designed and brought into motion and made sure happened every single part of it. It was no accident. It didn't happen by mistake. It didn't catch God off guard. Not only did he know it, he determined it from before the foundation of the world. And that's why he goes on to say that it was foreknown. The death of Christ was part of God's unstoppable plan. Jesus' death and suffering were no surprise. And I just, I just think, just stop and just... Just pause for a moment and think about what that means. The greatest horror in all of history, the Son of God. Think about that. There's nothing greater than this. There's nothing more horrific than this. You can try and find something, but you will find nothing that compares because the only perfect, righteous God of the universe was put to death by the hands of sinful human beings. It is horrific. And if it is the most horrific event in all of human history, And if God was sovereign over that, listen, God is sovereign over every part of your history as well. He's sovereign over your circumstances right now. That's not excusing sin, and that's what we're going to see. There's culpability in sin. But listen, God is sovereign over it all. Even when things seem wrong or bad or confusing, you can trust God. Isn't that awesome? I don't have a God who's caught off guard. And I just, I love what we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus knowing the horrific events that he was going to undergo. You say, what was so, you really, is that, is that really the most horrific event in history? Yes, because what Jesus suffered is greater than any, any person would suffer for all eternity. He suffered the full weight of God's wrath. Jesus knowing, because he was a part of the eternal counsels of God when this was planned, he entrusted himself to God all the way to the cross. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, the model for us is Jesus Christ. Whatever you're going through right now, you want to know what Jesus did? You want to know how he entrusted himself to the Father? He prayed. He got down, he poured his heart out to God. He pleaded with God for his strength. He pleaded with God for understanding, for wisdom, for direction. He pleaded with God for power to make it through whatever he had to face. And here's what he did. Secondly, listen, he obeyed. 
didn't let the fear cripple him. He didn't stop pursuing God. He kept moving forward. He kept obeying the Father. And that's what a Christian does. Listen, in our lives, when we face difficult things, we pray, we rally together with others and we pray, but we keep obeying, we cling to the word of God. It shapes our actions, it shapes our hearts and minds, and we believe that as we obey, God will bless. So why would God do this? Why would God have this unstoppable plan? Because this Jesus must fulfill next his unwavering purpose. Again, Peter, notice, he uses the word foreknowledge. He says that all of this, that Jesus being delivered up, is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, they are closely linked, but there are nuances that help us kind of unpack and understand what God is trying to communicate. Some people have believed that foreknowledge simply describes the ability to look forward and know what's coming, right? So somehow God has, you know, this, this, this vision where he can look down the corridors of time and he can see down the road what somebody is going to do. You know, he foreknows what they're going to do. But listen, that falls so far short of a, an accurate description and understanding of what the Word of God communicates about this idea of foreknowledge. It means far more than knowing before what, beforehand what will happen. In fact, the grammar in this passage indicates that this was the means by which the deliverance of Jesus into the hands of his enemies took place. In other words, it expresses resolution, not reaction. It expresses purpose, planning. Let me make a connection here with you with another passage and maybe one that hits a little closer to home. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it. You can write it down if you want. Romans 8, 29. It says this, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The context there is speaking about our salvation. It's speaking about who is saved and how God works in his sovereignty to bring about the salvation of lost sinners. And it speaks, listen, of the fact that God knew persons, those whom he foreknew. That's the language. Not, listen, not that he knew some fact about them, like somehow they're going to you know, look down in, in time, somehow they're going to simply believe. It's, it's a personal knowledge, an intimate relational knowledge that's being expressed in that passage there. God, looking into the future, thought of, here it is, thought of certain people in saving relationship to himself, and in that sense, he knew them long ago. I remember, I remember in my early days of being married, Sarah and I were talking about starting a family, and I remember vividly, I grew up in a family of four boys, and uh, I desperately wanted a little girl. You know, there's something about daddy's little girls, right? Fathers, you with me? Sorry for those of you who can't relate. Sons are good too, I have two. Something about a, a little girl. I just, I just wanted a little girl. And I remember that I would think about her. This is long before, you know, Sarah was even pregnant. I would, I would oftentimes catch myself daydreaming and thinking about, about my little girl, if God was gonna allow me to have a little girl. And I would think about her. I would think about what she might look like. I'd think about what she might sound like when she talked. I'd think about, you know, her little pigtails that I'd make a mess of trying to do and you know, like I still do. Um, I think about what her little personality would be. I think about the fun things that we would do and the little daddy-daughter dates that we'd get to have. And, you know, I can look at my daughter now who's seven years old and I can look at her and say, you know what, I thought of you long before you were ever born. 
I knew you. Now listen, the analogy breaks down. Because I didn't know that I was going to have a little girl. I didn't know what she would look like. But listen, here's, here's what's awesome. God does. God knows all those who are his. God thought, this is, this is here's, here's what you need to see here. God foreknew you if you're in Christ. He knew you before you were ever born. He knew what you would look like. He knew what you would be. He knew how your life would go. He knew he was going to save you. Why? Why did he know that? That's the question, why? Because he purposed to do so in eternity past. Listen, he thought of you. He didn't just look and see you making a decision for him. He said, I love that one. I will put my affection upon that one. I will save that one. That one, I have to think about the, the relationship here is the biblical picture of adoption. An adopted child doesn't kind of walk into a room full of adults and say, I choose those ones. Right? The parents walk in and they say, this one, this orphaned child, this one who maybe was left because their parents, you know, maybe died, I choose this one. I will love this one as my own. I will bring this one into my family. I will shower this one with my love and my grace. That's exactly what God did for you and I. Isn't that awesome? He knew us. He knew us. And that's a precious truth that I hold dear in my own heart. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I love this. He said, why did he do this? I don't know. The only answer I have is this right here, in love. In love. There's nothing lovely in me, believe me. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This Jesus is awesome. In the same way, the suffering and death of Jesus were foreknown. They were planned before time began because God had an unwavering purpose in his great love to save sinners who had been alienated from him. So Jesus, in the garden before his death, he knew what was coming. He prays this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There was no better way. There was no other way. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.20 that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. John saw in his vision in Revelation the end times there were people who bowed to the beast and worshiped the beast and says this, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. There is a book that was written before the foundations of the earth and in it are names of those whom are loved deeply by God. Now here's the tension. The plan and purposes of God in no way absolve the plan and purposes of man. This Jesus was killed, lastly, by unbelieving people. There's no get around what Peter, getting around what Peter is doing here. He is laying culpability, responsibility, and guilt upon these Jews who have condemned Jesus Christ. He says, this Jesus, this Jesus who was attested to you by God, this Jesus who is undeniable in his power and his miraculous ability in his wonders and his signs, this Jesus, yes, who was delivered up according to the predetermined plan of God, you killed. 
You crucified and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. You handed him over to the lawless, those who are not under the law, the Romans, the Gentiles. You put the Messiah to death by the hands of lawless men. You and yourselves were lawless in doing so. This mock trial that Jesus had was a sham. And here's the tension. Listen, God uses evil men to accomplish his purposes. Yet, Never does he in the process sin himself, and never does he violate their will, and never does he remove their culpability and their guilt. When you can figure it out, let me know. Peter thus presents the total sovereignty of God alongside the complete responsibility of man. They did what their sinful hearts wanted to do. Believe me, they were not forced to give Jesus over. They did what they wanted to do. The desires of their heart were sinful. Just like when you choose sin, you do exactly what you want to do. And so do I. They rejected the Messiah. They refused to believe that he was the Son of God. They handed him over to be put to death. They were guilty of crucifying and killing this Jesus. You see, right now, The Spirit of God is beginning to work powerfully in the hearts of many who are hearing Peter's sermon. For some, it's beginning to make sense. It's starting to click. The light bulb is going on. They're thinking back to a few months earlier, perhaps remembering how they were in the crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. They're beginning now in this moment to feel the guilt and shame The horrors of their sin are before them, but I wonder if they can see in this moment the Savior's love as he hangs as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. This morning, let me ask you, can you see your life of sin and rebellion as you look at the cross? It's important. Can you, ashamed, hear your mocking voice cry out among the scoffers? Can you, when you look at the cross, can you say, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? But more so, listen, can you rejoice in seeing the plan and purposes of God unfold as we see that Jesus paid it all? If you haven't yet, I wonder if you will do what Peter's here, as many of them will do, and just moments from Peter preaching this message. Will you turn and look upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Will you turn and repent of your sin? Will you see that this Jesus, this is the one who was sent for you? This is the one who can give you hope, who can give you life. But will you see that it will cost you everything? Will you lay down your life and will you follow him? Will you put your trust in what was accomplished on that day 2,000 years ago? And will you believe that what you will find in him is so much greater than what you can provide for yourself? 